Okay, this evening we're going to be continuing our series on whatever you do, and we're going to be looking at how we handle issues in the workplace. And I hope that even if you're not in the workplace, so if you're studying or whatever you're doing, that some of the things we talk about will be relevant to you. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg Shepherd. I'm an elder in this church, but I don't work for the church. I do something else, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my job for a moment. So what do these four things have in common? Hopefully we'll get the picture up. Uh, Hurricane Matthew, Costa Concordia, Deepwater Horizon, and Carrie Fisher. Well, all four of those things are, have been the subject of insurance claims that the insurance company that I work for has paid out money on. Um, just to explain, uh, the first three are fairly obvious, but with Carrie Fisher, what happens with any major film, the producers tend to buy insurance against the lives of the major players so that if anything happens to them, they can cover the costs of all the rewriting, recasting, rescheduling, uh, shooting uh, uh, footage again, all that sort of thing. And sadly, that was, of course, the case with uh, Carrie Fisher with Star Wars. Now, my job is chief risk officer. I'm responsible for making sure that risk is managed right across the world for our insurance company. And speaking of risk, I work in the walkie-talkie building, which gained a certain amount of notoriety for concentrating the sun's rays and melting car wing mirrors and plastic bags and enabling people to fry eggs on the pavement. They've sorted it out now. So this evening we're going to look at somebody in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who had some issues in the workplace, Joseph. And you might be asking yourself, well, hang on, we're trying to relate to a 21st century workplace. Why are we looking back at a guy who lived thousands of years ago? But God speaks through these stories in the Old and New Testament and gives us insight into the way that God deals with us and also how people interact with one another. And sometimes that's a good interaction and sometimes it's a bad one. I wonder how much you can remember about the story of Joseph. We first meet him in Genesis 37, where he's a gifted young man in that he has some dreams that turn out to be prophetic and all turn out to be true. But also, he's pretty irritating. He's spoiled rotten by his father, who gives him this coat of many colors, and he really brags to his brothers about how in these dreams they're going to end up bowing down to him. But in Genesis 39, he's been brought low. His brothers have found him so annoying that they've done something really terrible to him and they've sold him into slavery. So let's look at Genesis 39, verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. So in Genesis 39, he's become a slave in the household of a senior Egyptian army officer. And I want to draw your attention, first of all, to a phrase in the passage we just read. The Lord was with Joseph. 
This or a similar phrase occurs twice in the passage that we read, and then it occurs twice more in the rest of the chapter. So why does the writer of Genesis keep using this phrase? If you read the story of Joseph from beginning to end, it's very clear that God is with Joseph. It takes him from this, this young man to become this senior government official in, uh, in Egypt, responsible for saving many lives from famine. But if you read just this part of the story, where Joseph's been sold into slavery, and he's about to be thrown into prison, wrongly accused of attempted rape, you might say, well, it doesn't look very much like God is with Joseph at all. So what's going on here? Well, what is the story of Joseph about? You might think it's about a coat of many colors or dreams and interpretations. But actually, there's a bigger story going on here. And that's the story of how God matured Joseph and took him from being this brash, arrogant young man into a man of maturity who was able to handle great responsibility. How did that happen? Did it happen when things were going really easily and well? Well, no, actually, the maturity came as he went through issues and difficulties. What's the story of your life? Well, maybe to have a good career. Well, it, that may be a byproduct. But actually, God's plan for your life is that you become mature in Christ, that you become more Christ-like. And actually, that tends not to happen so much when things are going really well, but it's through trials and difficulties that actually we learn. <clears throat> and God often uses the workplace and the issues that we find in it to change us. James chapter 1 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we face difficulties, say in the workplace, our initial reaction, very understandably, is, oh, Lord, change these circumstances. Take the problem away. And sometimes he does. But other times it doesn't seem to be like that. And actually what we can miss is that God is using that circumstance and that situation sometimes to work through us and change us. And I think that if we change the way that we look at trials and difficulties, instead of just saying, oh, this is horrible, but to see, actually, God's got a plan and a purpose. He's about fashioning my character to make me more mature in Christ, make me more Christ-like. It changes the way that we feel about these issues. I want to give you an example from my own life. Those of you who know me well will know that I love to be Mr. Nice Guy. I don't like saying things that other people don't want to hear. And that all sounds very endearing, doesn't it, and nice. But actually, it's not very Christ-like, because as we read the Gospels, we can see that Jesus loved people more than anybody else has ever done, but that also meant that he didn't hold back from telling people some pretty hard things, because it was the, what they needed to hear. So if I'm going to become more Christ-like, I've got to change in my attitude. And in my mid-twenties, God clearly, clearly led me to take a job as an insurance regulator where I was having to, to have meetings and ring people up who are often quite senior in the insurance industry and say, what you're, you've got to stop what you're doing or you've got to start doing this instead. And I wasn't very popular with them, as you can imagine. And I hated it. I really struggled with having those meetings. But actually, God was at work. And although I still feel 
but I still find difficult conversations difficult, God has adjusted something in me. He, there's a plan and a purpose. He's maturing each of us. And the Lord is with you in your situation to help you. It was great to hear what Tamsin had to say about praying about behavior uh, in the school and how it made an, an impact. The Lord is with you to help you. We're going to look at three workplace issues this evening. First of all, work-life balance, then temptation to compromise your standards, and third, responding in a Christian way. So first of all, work-life balance. And we found that this was an issue in, in hearing from our teachers. Joseph was a slave. There was no difference between his work life and his home life. And increasingly in today's workplace, there's more and more of a blurred line between our home life and our, and our work. Over the 20th century, what happened was that working hours began to go down until they reached about an average of about 35 hours a week in the 1970s. But from the 1980s, they started to go back up again. And a recent TUC survey found that the average working week, the average, is now 43.6 hours a week. And, of course, that means a lot of people are doing a lot more than that. And so if you think about your 35-hour week in 1970s, uh, people are now doing the equivalent of at least an extra day on top of that. So it's a real issue. Many of us find that we're expected to check emails in the evening, perhaps work at the weekend. Uh, one person in my organization, she felt that she was so busy that she started taking days off, days holiday, but she would actually be working from home on those days in the, the hope that she'd be disturbed less and could actually get some things done. It's, it's an increasing problem in our society that work has, is making more and more demands upon us and we can feel like we're drowning and we're never able to switch off. So here are two things that I do uh, that I hope might be helpful to you. The first is to please the boss. And let me explain what I mean. Many years ago, I'd be working for my boss, my immediate boss, and sometimes I'd get a request to do something direct for my boss's boss's boss. And uh, I, would, uh, I found very quickly that if I aligned my priorities with his priorities, everything else kind of fell into place. And I thought, oh, perhaps there's a spiritual analogy here. If I align my priorities with the boss, not the one in the office, but the Lord, then perhaps everything will fall into place. And to be honest, that's been my testimony over the years. And my ultimate boss, the Lord, has some things that he wants me to prioritize in my life. These aren't in any particular order. But first of all, work. The Lord tells us to work hard. We've been looking at this series from Colossians where it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord. So that means that I can't be slapdash. I need to work diligently. I need to focus. I need to be a team player. I need to go the extra miles for my colleagues. And sometimes that means putting in some extra time. But the Lord also wants me to be a good father. And when our kids were young, that meant leaving work at a reasonable time so that I could spend a bit of quality time with them each day. And uh, what I used to do is get home in time to read them a story before they went to sleep. The Lord also tells me to be a good husband, to lay down my life for my, for my wife. And um, part of that is making sure that I've got enough quality time for her and enough quality energy. 
because they're not necessarily the same thing. Let me give you an example, uh, a famous or rather infamous occasion from a few years ago in our, in our marriage. I was in the midst of a frantically busy time at work, and we decided that we would go out for a meal. So we, we got a, a babysitter and everything, went out to a restaurant for an evening, but it didn't go very well. Why was that? Well, the problem was I'd been giving and giving and giving of myself at work and giving and giving and giving of myself at church. And we got to this evening and I had no energy left. And I was not able to really, I was physically present, but I wasn't emotionally present for my wife who immediately detected this and it wasn't a great evening. That sort of thing doesn't actually honor God because he wants us to have a quality time and energy for our spouses. And I want to talk to the guys here in particular, because I think as guys, we we really want to make a difference. We want to be significant. And so we throw ourselves into our workplaces, and maybe we throw ourselves into ministry at church. And sometimes we forget that the people who we're going to be the most significant and the people we're going to make the most difference to are our wives and our kids. So let's not sacrifice our marriages and our families on the altar of career. The same God who tells me to do all these things also tells me to be a fully functioning member of the body of Christ and really play my part in church as well. So that means being committed to things. That has meant, yes, I am going to get back in time so I can go to the midweek meeting. It's very important. So I try to please the boss, the ultimate boss. Second thing is I try to take a break. It's important to have time off. Genesis tells us that even God rested from his works on the seventh day. I don't think that has to be a Sunday. And if you've been serving at church, sometimes Sunday doesn't feel like a day off. But for me, I take that to mean that we need to make sure we get enough time to relax and recuperate so that we're restored. A student we know who doesn't actually go to church, but she found that taking one day completely off from study actually had a massive benefit on the other six days of the week. How do I cope with having a busy job and being an elder of this church? Well, the first answer is the grace of God, but the second answer is that we schedule and take regular breaks, things like weekends away. I found it to be absolutely essential to have some time to really disengage. Now, none of this is easy. If it was easy, we'd all have cracked it by now, wouldn't we? There are some hard choices. We need to set out some ground rules that perhaps we won't look at work emails between particular times, won't look at emails on holiday, as many of my colleagues do, um, and that we're going to leave the office at a reasonable time. Sometimes we need to set some boundaries, because if you're always answering emails at 9 o'clock at night, everyone's going to expect you to keep doing that. Sometimes you have to change and show people that you're not going to continue doing that. The next area we're going to talk about is the temptation to compromise your standards. In Genesis 39, verse 6, Joseph encounters temptation in the workplace. It says this, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. 
One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Just goes to show, doesn't it, that sexual temptation and indeed sexual harassment in the workplace is as old as the Bible itself. Okay, in this case, the temptation is sexual, but I think that there are many forms of temptation in the workplace, and some of the the features of this temptation could uh, be applied to other things. It might be things like cutting corners, massaging figures, lying to clients. Let's look at the features. The first is uh, short-term gain versus long-term pain. If it wasn't appealing, it wouldn't be tempting. I think we can assume that Potiphar's wife was attractive because he had Potiphar had quite a senior position, so we assume that he would have been able to marry an attractive wife. Jo- uh, Joseph, as a young single man, would have been battling with sexual desire and temptation seems to give you something it has that lie of of a short-term gain but the long-term consequences are horrific just think about the story of David and Bathsheba and the wreckage that was caused by giving into temptation second feature is no one will know Potiphar's wife says that when she corners him none of the other household servants are inside and a lie of temptation is that nobody other than the people directly involved is ever going to find out but God sees everything and things wrongdoing has a tendency to come out if you think about something like the LIBOR scandal with the banks or VW emissions things tend to emerge over time it's a lie that no one will know next that it's expected Potiphar's wife doesn't seem to really think that Joseph is going to say no to her and the workplace is often a place where wrongdoing can be expected what, what do you mean you won't overcharge the client? Everybody does that. It, and Joseph was a slave. He was just expected to follow what his bosses told him to do. And this can be quite difficult when we're in that sort of culture. Next, it says that she spoke to Joseph day after day. And if you imagine being in his situation, there might have been days when he felt really strong, able to resist the temptation, and other days when he felt weak. It's very hard when we're in that sort of culture. Uh, on a day-to-day basis how does Joseph respond to this well he makes a very courageous response first of all he says that everything my master owns he is entrusted to my care he recognizes that he's in a position of responsibility what he does impacts others and as Christians in the workplace it's not just about us and our reputation anymore it's about the name of Jesus and how the name of Jesus is perceived. Next, Joseph has some boundaries. He knows that he lives with a lot of freedom in his workplace, but there are certain lines he will not cross. He says, my master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Have you thought through about what you are prepared to do and what you're not? I think that's actually really quite helpful. And if you take up a a job and you go there in the first few weeks it's quite helpful to try and lay down some markers with people some hints that there are some things that you won't do lastly he runs there comes a point for Joseph where the temptation is so great or the situation so unbearable that he runs and we need to be prepared to be radical someone I know a Christian in the insurance industry was on a business trip with his boss they were visiting some clients and uh, his boss said 
to the clients, well, why don't we all go out for the evening? So that's only great. They went to a bar, everything's fine. Uh, boss orders this big bottle of champagne, oh, that's lovely. And then suddenly a stripper comes on stage. So he's got a real dilemma now. He doesn't want to embarrass his boss, particularly in front of the clients, but he can't be there. How is he going to handle it? So what he did was he said, you know what, guys, I'm just feeling really tired. I'm going to head back to the hotel. That was really well handled. Didn't create a scene, but he got himself out of the situation. May the Lord give us all wisdom to handle temptation as he did. Sometimes we can influence the situation that we're in for good, and sometimes we can't, and sometimes that's just not our fault. The American author and preacher Tim Keller tells the story of two uh, Christians in the advertising industry, a man and a woman, and the guy, his client, uh, is a sports car manufacturer, and they want to set market this car on the basis of its supposed sex appeal, and the guy thinks, I'm really not comfortable with this. So very skillfully, he works on changing the campaign. So in the end, it, it's not about sex appeal, but it's about the car's high performance. That's really great. The woman, on the other hand, she's, her client is a, is a cosmetics firm, and they want to uh, sell their products on the message that if you use our products, you will find love. Oh, no, I don't, I'm really uncomfortable with that. So she tries to change the message, but she can't, and she ends up leaving. Not her fault. Sometimes you can influence things, and sometimes you can't. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the story of Joseph. It's not, well, Joseph resisted the temptation, and everything went well for him, and he was promoted to this place, this position in the Egyptian government. No, things went terribly wrong for him afterwards. He got falsely accused of rape and thrown in jail. But God was looking after him in the end. And even though there were short-term difficulties, God was at work in his life. So if you're in a situation where things are difficult. We would love to pray for you afterwards. God is with you. God is sovereign. God is the, the boss, and he will help you in his own time and his own way and will raise you up. Someone, uh, I came to see him after I preached this morning, and he said that he was in a situation where he ended up losing his job unjustly, and uh, when he came to take his next job, he found that he could only get it with a 25% reduction in salary. It's pretty hard to swallow. But he said that actually what happened then was that God provided for his family and God met his needs. And isn't that a wonderful testimony of how even when things go wrong or seem to go wrong, God is in control. The last thing I want to talk about is responding in a godly way. And we're going to fast forward more than 10 years and look at Genesis 42. But before that, some background. The story is too long for me to read it to you from the Bible, but just to summarize, Joseph gets unjustly thrown into prison for attempted rape, and while he's there, he interprets some prisoners' dreams that turn out to be true. And uh, this brings him to the attention of Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, who wants someone to interpret the dreams that he's had. Joseph does this, and Pharaoh is so struck by Joseph's wisdom that he makes Joseph a government minister in charge of a 14-year project to protect Egypt from famine. And the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams come true. There's a famine, and people from other nations are affected, including Joseph's brothers, who more than 10 years after they sold Joseph into slavery come to Egypt to buy grain. And it says this in Genesis 42. 
Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Picture the scene. Joseph, after all his difficulties, finds himself in an extremely senior position in the Egyptian government, second only to Pharaoh. And then his brothers turn up. And they don't recognize him. And they're in desperate need because there's a famine, and they bow down to him just as his dream predicted all those years ago. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. What a temptation to get revenge. Here are the brothers who sold you into slavery, which led you to being falsely imprisoned, and here they are. They're completely at your mercy. You can do anything to them. You can throw them into prison. You could sell them into slavery. Let's just see how they like it. And God seems to be on Joseph's side. I mean, the, the dreams seem to completely vindicate Joseph. They don't recognize him. And they don't realize that he knows what they're saying because he can understand them. But he's speaking back to them through an interpreter. What is Joseph going to do? Is he going to treat his brothers as they treated him? Or is he going to do something different? Now, in our lives and in our workplaces, we will find there are many times where people treat us badly, where people treat us unfairly. You may have been uh, passed over for promotion. You may have been bullied. You may have been manipulated or lied to or even unjustly dismissed. There may be many, many things that, uh, where you've been hurt or unfairly treated. How are you going to respond? And I find the story of Joseph fascinating from this point of view. Because covering 10 years of Joseph's life, the writer of Genesis takes four chapters. But to describe what happens in Joseph's interaction with his brothers in this period takes another four chapters. Why is that? Well, because it was a massive thing for Joseph. He was so hurt by this that this is a real watershed moment, real turning point in his life. Which way is he going to go? And actually, I think that he doesn't necessarily do the right things straight away he doesn't he's not open and honest with his brothers over who he is and he does put them into jail initially some commentators try in my view to whitewash joseph one said oh well during this period he's just trying to work out if his brothers have truly repented well i don't actually get that i think he was really struggling with the whole issue and that makes him much more human to me because i think that this is a big deal for all of us as well and in the end, in Genesis 45, he comes to the right place. He says, he says to his brothers, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And in Genesis 50, he says, You intended to harm me. Not, oh, you didn't really mean any. No, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. In the end, he does the right thing. He forgives them and treats them kindly. Now, you may, when you've been treated badly in your workplace or in your place of education, you may not have always responded in the right way. Let's just put that to one side. That's not important now. The important thing is how we respond in our hearts to people who have wronged us. 
1 Peter 3, verse 9, it says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. It's difficult to respond with kindness to people who have treated us badly. We can try in our own strength, but it's really tough. So how do we manage to do that? The story of Joseph is amazing about how he responds with kindness to people who have treated him badly. But I wonder if that reminds you of another story. The Lord Jesus was put to death when he was completely innocent. And he could have called upon 12 legions of angels to wipe out all the people who were involved in his crucifixion. But instead, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them. And that's what's so distinctive about Christianity. Most world religions acknowledge that there's a gap between human beings and the divine, that we've all fallen short. You only just have to look around at people to to know that. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And so we need to find a way to bridge that gap. And for most religions, it's, well, there's a set of rules that you have to comply with, but that's actually really difficult. So we have sacrifices to try and atone and bridge the gap. Where Christianity is unique is that God himself says, I'm going to come and live life as it should be lived and fulfill all those rules for you. And then it's, I'm going to give myself to be the sacrifice, to pay the price. So we get the righteousness of how Christ lived and he gets the punishment that we deserve. Wow. Some people call that the divine exchange. I would say that's the best offer you and I will ever, ever get in our lives. And every time we come into God's presence, it's like we're Joseph's brothers. We have nothing and he has everything. We have wronged him and he can do with us what he likes. But instead of treating us as we deserve, he gives us grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness every single time we come into the presence of God. And I think that the way to handle these work issues is not to try and steal ourselves. I must try harder to forgive. No, it's being overwhelmed with the grace and mercy and love of God because as that flows into our lives and and overwhelms us and we realize just how amazingly blessed we are, so an overflow can take place where we can show kindness to people, not because of what they've done or because we're anything, but because of what he has done. And that flowing into our lives can then flow outwards to other people. I've read this story before when I've preached, but it's so real and so powerful that I want to read it again. It's a testimony from a teacher in another part of the country. And she says this, I had a very difficult situation with some parents who in the end took their child away from the school, blaming my poor pastoral care as the primary reason. And actually, if you knew this lady, you would know that that was completely unjust. Obviously, this was very upsetting, especially as they communicated in writing with the head rather than directly with me. It was not fun reading a whole A4 sheet criticising you. I had to ask God for grace to smile at the mum when I met her in the playground. Then strangely, before the child left, we went on a school trip and the child was ill. And I spent most of the day with her and had to hold her head over a bin several times while she vomited. All in the day's work for a teacher. The next day, her mum arrived with flowers. 
to say thank you. See, as we experience this love of Christ, as we were thinking in the worship time, that he will never let us go, never leave us nor forsake us, as we allow ourselves to be consumed with that love of Christ in our lives, it enables us to respond differently to other people. It enables us to love others, not because of anything that we can do, but because of his love and grace.